Thanks for tuning in to the Thirst for More podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Smitley. Thirst for More podcast was created to help strength and conditioning coaches, personal trainers, fitness enthusiasts, and anyone that loves lifting heavy shit all be connected under one roof. We take deep dives into coaching, programming and training, running gyms, nutrition, and overall improving your knowledge in the field of strength and conditioning. If you're new here, I'm glad you're able to tune in and hope you can just take away one awesome piece of information today to help you along with your journey. If you're a returning supporter, I appreciate you being along for the ride. Now let's dive into today's episode. On the 36th episode of the Thirst for More podcast, I sit down with Jim Jarvis of Jarvis Performance. I got to know Jarvis through Elite FTS and our powerlifting uh, communications and connections that we have through Elite FTS, and I've known him for about four or five years now, and Jim has been someone that I've loved to talk shop with uh, and overall just talk training and sports performance. But on this particular episode, we talk with Jarvis about strength conditioning and in particular with the hockey population as that's his niche subset population that he primarily works with. He does work with other athletes, but he's been highly involved in the hockey population for quite some time. We also discuss his route into powerlifting and in particularly the multiply game, which is now how Jim chooses to compete in powerlifting. Jim does use the conjugate system to help develop his athletes, so we kind of discuss some of that as well and why he likes that system over other systems in terms of working with his hockey population. And then we also talk about some of the sport culture that is behind hockey as it is a different sport. It's not one that is super popular in the United States as it is like in Canada. Uh, We obviously more gravitate towards basketball, baseball, and football, so we kind of talk about the uniqueness of hockey uh, within that subset. Jim has played football, hockey, and baseball himself. He even went to UW LeClaire and played hockey uh, and then transferred around to University of Minnesota Duluth. He spent several years in the strength and conditioning field in Minnesota and Idaho as well and also in the private sector, which is now where he is and operates Jarvis Performance. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you're looking for information on training the hockey athlete, this is going to be a fantastic episode with my friend Jim Jarvis. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, Brandon here, and I'm here today with Jim Jarvis of Jarvis Performance. How you doing, Jim? Good. How are you? I'm good. I appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm trying to think. I honestly can't remember the first time that we even met. I know it was through Elite FTS at, at some point. I think it was probably was it like one of the Learn to Trains or something? I think it was the last Sports Performance Summit that they okay. had out there. Okay. I think yep. it was 2019 that we met. Okay. Okay. Yep. And so, and we've kind of been connected ever since. And you guys are driving through to go to Elite FTS whenever you go there because we are kind of on the way. I'm assuming for you guys. So, um, it's been nice to get to know you and hang out um, the, today. In terms of discussing training and whatnot, I know that you're really involved in hockey, uh, and that's kind of looks like where you've got your start. Um, I guess kind of walk us through. What got you into strength and conditioning and then eventually how that snowballed into the, the hockey side of it? So I played hockey uh, all, you know, growing up since I was, I think I first started when I was four. Uh, played through my first two years of college. Um, the guy that actually recruited me got fired the August before my freshman year. So a month before I was on campus, he got fired. Um, so after my sophomore year, I transferred to a different school, um, just to go to school and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I actually hated lifting growing up because 
and hockey, all my coaches, including my college strength coach, was like, you know, you can't go too heavy. You can't go too heavy. You're going to get, get big and bulky, and then you're going to be slow in the net. And I look back at that now, and I'm like, I was 145 pounds. I don't think I was going to get big and bulky anytime soon back then. So going through some different things, I knew I wanted to get into the coaching side of things in the coaching world. Um, I originally thought I was going to get into the uh, just coaching side of coaching hockey. Um, and then I started taking some exercise science classes, some sports physiology classes, and absolutely loved it and realized, okay, there's actual like science behind this. And once again, that science pointed to, I wasn't ever going to get big and bulky and slow in the net as long as, you know, I trained hard and kept moving and all that. So, um, and that was kind of like my intro to it was like, yeah, you, you were kind of on the right path of things. So, um, started with that, started an internship at, uh, University of Minnesota Duluth and absolutely loved it. Loved being in the weight room, loved learning about everything. So as that went on, um, kind of got more into the strength sports side of things. So our coach up there, who I interned under, made us do a strength sport to compete because his big thing was all coaches need to do something. Um, it doesn't matter necessarily what, but he wanted you to do something so that way you could be in the gym training as well. So he gave me an option of only lifting strongman or powerlifting. And at that time, I was still like 150 pounds. So I was like, you know, powerlifting and strongman is probably not going to be my thing right now. But I was very hypermobile, so getting into the position for like I guess catching a snatch, things like that were absolutely no problem for me. So did only lifting for a couple of years. Um, and then when I got out of UMD, I moved out to Idaho and started my career at a private performance gym out there, where we contracted with a couple of high schools and a junior college out there. And then after that, got into the college sector, um, stayed there for quite a while, and then got into the private sector after that. Awesome. Um, in terms of the, <clears throat> the weightlifting side, I'm assuming that also with all your time in the weight room, you were probably from training athletes for those, uh, uh, coaches that you were under, were they pretty Olympic heavy where they were using snatch and clean and jerk in their programming? Yep. yep absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. every, yeah. every team that we worked with was doing the only list. So, yeah. And then I guess uh, from from there, did you just drift towards powerlifting over time, or did you actually just get tired of the weightlifting? Like, how did you move that segment over to going from weightlifting to powerlifting? So when I was out in Idaho, my very last day that I was out there, um, I went skiing with my boss that I had out there and then some of my adult clients that I had out there. We all went out to a ski hill, went skiing for the day. So we started skiing at about eight o'clock in the morning and we skied until about six o'clock in the evening. Well, out there where we were, it would get up to like 40, 50 degrees during the day and then it'd get really cold at night again. I didn't put two and two together. So I kind of went cruising into the parking lot where our car was parked without realizing that it was snow in the morning, but it was going to be glare ice at night. So I went cruising into the parking lot couldn't stop and my options were to put my shoulder into a car 
and stop myself that way or go skiing off a cliff. So I lower my shoulder and stop myself with a car. And when I did that, I dislocated my left shoulder and I could never catch a snatch again without my shoulder dislocating. Gotcha. So you kind of made a force force move, I guess, from a shoulder mobility perspective. Yep. Yep. So, so after that, after I, and I tried everything, I tried different rehab. I tried like just starting really light and just working up. And after every time I'd get to like, not even 60 kilos, it was like 35, 40 kilos each time I, it would just dislocate. So, yeah. So after doing that a few times, I got sick of doing that. So, um, moved over to the powerlifting side and, and haven't looked back since. So. Awesome. Does it does it give you any issues with bench press? No, actually, I have issues with my right shoulder and bench. Oh, from <laughs> for, from other issues um, from back in high school when I played baseball. So, gotcha. Yep. All right. In terms of the the hockey side, so just for some clarity, in Indiana, there is no high school hockey, uh, at least not at the like sanctioned high school level. I, I know there's clubs for sure, um, but there's no giant participation in our state. So I've not been subjected to it from a strength conditioning perspective, like in a weight room. Um, so I guess talk about in terms of working with hockey players, uh, some certain things that you're focused on that you might not be so much with other athletes. I don't want to say it's got to be specific, but obviously they're on ice and they're not running. So that's a little bit of a different demand and, uh, I know that the energy system development also is, is pretty important there. I mean, matches are pretty long. And then you also got to take into account that hockey's kind of known for having fights. So, I mean, you got to kind of prepare for that to some degree too. So the big, the biggest thing with hockey is hips. So there's a study that was just done. Um, and it was that 85% of hockey players over the age of 18 had hip labrum tears. Whether or not they're symptomatic or not, it, they didn't go into that, but 85% had hip labrum tears. And it's just the nature of hockey. Um, A, most players play year-round, or at least are on the ice year-round. They might not be on a team year-round, but they're skating year-round. Um, and then B, it's a whole different movement pattern. It's not a natural movement pattern. Because you're going into hip extension with hip external rotation. And then you're going back into hip internal rotation. But you're not actually getting a whole lot of hip flexion. So you're just hammering that hip and external rotation and with the uh, extension. So, and it's just over and over and over again. And it's very, very rapid. It's a very high velocity movement. So. Um, so that's the biggest thing. Uh, so starting with hips, and that's kind of one of the big things that I really try and hammer is with my hockey players is, hey, we got to take care of hips. Um, whether or not that's, that comes from muscle work um, by way of like body tempering or if we do some FRC work or if we're doing some RPR work, um, just different things that I try and do with them with changing up the modality of what we're trying to do. Um, but doing that, making sure we're, you know, actually working through all our accessory work. We'll do a lot of different hip stuff 
We'll do hip adductional bands, hip abductional bands. We'll do some hip internal rotation into hip flexional bands just to kind of counteract all the hip external rotation and hip extension. So we'll do a lot of that kind of stuff and, you know, stressing to them that we can't just go through the motion. you got to actually focus on it is a very important part. Um, yeah. Because a lot of them will just go through the motion and then you're not getting anything done. So, um, so that's kind of the, the big things with hockey. Um, as far as the energy systems, it's probably the weirdest sport as far as energy systems go because it's very, very high output and then absolutely zero output. And it's constantly changing because you get times where you're out on the ice for 15 seconds and then you're on the bench for, you know, two or three minutes. There's times where you're on the ice for 45 seconds to a minute and a half if you get caught on a long line change and then you're on the bench for, you know, two to three minutes. So um, it's a very, very, very anaerobic driven sport. Um, One of the big things with that, and I try and, you know, talk to my guys about it, is we can't just go anaerobic all the time because your cortisol levels get all out of whack if we're training anaerobic year-round. Some of these guys just want to get on a, like, an assault bike or echo bike and just do hard-ass intervals all the time um, and just go all out every single time they're on the bike. And, like, we need to build an aerobic base, too. We can't just always be anaerobic doing high intervals. Um, So, you know, explaining the difference and explaining why we need to do that um, has kind of been a thing that they're starting to understand it a little bit, um, but it's been kind of hard to kind of pound through some of their heads. Um, As far as fighting goes, I've only had one guy that was actually – I can't really call him a fighter because he never really fought. He just, he was a goon. So he started all the fights and then it would just turn into a brawl with him on the ice. Yeah. Um, but he was, ne- he was a smaller guy. So he was never a one V one fight guy. He was always the guy that started all the shit. Um, there's actually a video of him on YouTube where he starts a huge brawl because he cross checks the guy right square in the teeth. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I mean, it's just a line brawl after that. So, so yeah. Um, in terms of the, the, the hip internal rotation work, I, uh, I'm trying to think how I want to say this. The, are you finding that with, if you can get a hold of them soon enough that they've still got decent enough mobility to get into the internal rotation or, or by the time you're seeing, your athletes, is it the fact, is it the opposite way that there's just like no internal rotation available and you're trying to restore it? I would say the vast majority don't have any, any internal rotation right now. Okay. Um, there's been a handful, um, but most of them, they have very, very good external rotation, obviously. But they're yep. just they're locked up as soon as you try and go into internal rotation yeah, with them. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I wondered. Um, <laughs> are you doing? I, I know something that people want think about in terms of hockey. Um, are you guys doing any specific adductor work as well for for those guys? 
Yep. So we'll do uh, hip adduction with bands. We'll do hip adduction on a bench. Um, we'll do Kazakh squats, um, Messier squats, just a lot of lateral movement like that. Um, we'll do like a lateral step up, um, pretty much anything to get into the adductor. Okay. And then uh, a little bit more depth here on hockey. When are when are most kids getting subjected to the ice and actually playing the sport? Is that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess that it's like soccer where we're at. Uh, yep. Soccer is incredibly prevalent. Uh, I'm assuming they're probably getting on there as probably as young as parents can get them on there. I would say four or five oh is okay. when they they start playing. Um, so at four or five is when you start mini mites, and then mini mites is, has gone to just basically practices and like mini games. So they'll play cross ice in like one zone. And they'll block off the rest of the ice. Okay. We'll have like three games going at a time. Okay. Um, and then mites. So many mites is like four, five, five, six, and then mites is like six, seven, seven, eight, eight, nine. Um, so there's like three years of mites there. And with mites, especially when you get into that second, third year, that's when they'll start playing full games. And they'll usually play like ten full games a year. And then squirts is like when you're 9, 10, 10, 11. Um, and then that's when like the crazy games start happening. Um, there's some sport teams that will play like 45, 50 games a year. Wow. So, so. they're doing, um, I'm assuming that's kind of like the equivalent of travel ball and everything else. Yep. So in Minnesota is completely different than the rest of the country other than maybe Michigan and Massachusetts. Okay. Um, but Minnesota, basically every town has a sport team. I mean, there's like Hinkley where I grew up is a small town of about 1500. They still have squirt hockey there. They play up there until squirts and then they combine with a different high, uh, school for high school hockey and all that. But yeah, they, you play up until squirts at your local town team and you just go from there. So like with that being said, there's, I, I don't even know how many squirt teams there are in Minnesota. There's probably a thousand. Oh, wow. Okay. Between all the different levels. So they divide them up into like three to four different levels and all four levels, you know, will travel to different towns and play. So, in Minnesota, like travel hockey and house hockey kind of are the same thing. Um, except for like the very, very, very bottom leagues. So, so pretty much everybody travels. Okay. Um, and, and then in terms of the, knowing that in terms of the, the training that goes along with that, I'm going to guess that our parents similar to where with like basketball and soccer, once the kids get to be like seven, eight, nine, maybe 10, they start looking for quote unquote speed and agility training. I haven't had anybody that young look for speed and agility training for hockey yet. It's usually skill training first that they're looking at. Okay. So they'll bring them to these skill development people, um, especially goalies, which yeah, to, to me is one of the weirdest things ever because as, much as 
movement in hockey isn't natural, goaltending movement is extremely, extremely unnatural. Right. Because you're going into, you know, your butterfly movement. You're putting your jo- your hip joints into some extreme ranges of motion. And it's just why some of these parents are putting those kids into that when they're nine years old, I still don't know. Yeah, but, well. But, yeah, so, um, so yeah, so that kind of levels where they start that. Um, most of the kids that I've had, the young, when they start with me, the youngest they are is 12. Okay. Kind of so, and so in terms of your training, what you're doing, I guess you can walk me through different, different ages, I guess. How do you, um, with your, your main movements, just, you know, your general global programs that you're implementing with these hockey kids, um, what are kind of the, your big things that you try to check down every single time you're working with them and how you're determining your exercises and, and things like that? So, with my young kids, I always start them with just jumping on the turf. Just, we don't do any box jumps or anything like that. We work on just producing force and absorbing force just on the turf and and stabilizing. Um, So, we'll do that. That's kind of our big thing uh, that we start off with. And then we'll go into like a goblet box squat. I always have my kids goblet squat until they can goblet squat successfully for five sets of five up to 55 pounds. Once they can do 55 pounds for five sets of five, I know that they can handle the bar. Um, so then I'll transfer them to the bar after that. Now, some of the kids I've had that have started older with me, um, and it's kind of, uh, all right, we got to go type thing. And, you know, we have like a year, year and a half of development left with them. I'll throw them right on the bar and just make sure that they can move correctly with it. If it's really ugly the first couple of times, I'll back them down and I'll regress them to a goblet squat. But I haven't had to do that yet, um, thankfully. So so we'll go into a box squat like that, and then we'll do a lot of glute and hamstring work. Um, so a lot of people will think that you know hockey is a very quad-dominant sport. Which it can be, but if you can get it into glute and hamstring instead of quad, that hip extension becomes a lot more prevalent than the hip external rotation, and you can prevent a lot of hip issues. So I work a lot glute hamstring work. So we'll do Nordic glute ham raises, um, glute ham raises in the machine. We'll do a lot of different uh like glute bar lift glute hand bar lifts um stability ball leg curls anything that can we can get the glutes and hamstrings working together um and making sure that we work synergistically with those um is kind of my big thing so i don't want to necessarily isolate just the hamstring and i don't want to just isolate the glute as much as i want to make sure everything's working together so that's kind of our lower body days so we'll jump We'll squat and we'll hammer the glutes and hamstrings. Um, upper body wise, we do a lot of rotation tosses. Um, so we'll do a lot of med ball rotation tosses just to get them used to rotating for shots and things like that. Um, goal is also rotated a ton when they're in the net. Um, they're loading up rotating. So we want to get them used to that rotation. And then we'll do a lot of uh 
posterior chain work in, in the back. So we'll do pull-ups, we'll do rows, we'll do all kinds of other stuff. And then we usually bench as well. Um, especially with my female hockey players, I have found that getting them strong on bench has improved their shot tremendously. And I've seen a lot of girls that are weak just have little fluttery shots and they can't really get a whole lot on there. Um, and that's actually been huge for some of the girls I've trained um, that are skaters. Being able to rip a shot instead of just having something that kind of flutters on net has been a game changer for them. So Interesting. And are, for the athletes that you're working with, approximately how often are you seeing kids? So I see the vast majority of my kids two days a week in season and then four days a week off season. Okay. Awesome. So you got them, you got them a good amount whenever they're not really truly playing or supposed to be playing, I guess. And so you, so even with your in season kids, you're not seeing most of them run into time commitment issues, even with twice a week. So most of my twice a week kids either come Saturday, Sunday, or they'll come Sunday, Wednesday. Um, depending on their schedule. So the Sunday, Wednesday I've found has been great because the high school sports here don't normally play on Wednesdays and then they always have Sundays off. So, um, so that's been kind of a nice, easy schedule to keep with most of my athletes. Gotcha. So that's a, that's really good that they're able to stay in and season. Have you had any kind of kickback from parents or kids in terms of, them training in season. I know many uh, parents and athletes usually get concerned that they're going to be sore or they're not going to be able to practice or play well. Have you had any kind of kickback on that? Um, the only kickback I've ever had on that has come from uh, my swimmers and my Nordic skiers. Okay. So hockey players, I don't usually get much kickback on that from. Okay. And so the – are you working with the the kids that you're working with or what kind of – are you guys using one-on-one training or are you doing small group? It's, it's small group, um, although on Sundays I've actually started making the groups bigger and it's been kind of fun. Um, and the kids kind of – the kids like a lot more, I would, should, would say, um, because then they get to see each other because they all kind of train with each other at some point in time um throughout the year especially in the summer like i'll have kids that train together like on mondays and then on wednesdays they train with a different group fridays they train with a different group and most of them have all skated together at least a couple times um with different goalie coaches or different skill coaches but sunday mornings have been a time where i've been bringing in like 10 to 12 kids at a time okay that's been that's been a lot of fun Awesome. Yeah. So so we work with some baseball and softball girls in like a team based setting. Um, and it's usually pretty fun and pretty competitive that we get, it brings up the bottom portion of the group a lot because they're almost seen to keep up with the expectation of the rest of the group. And so they'll end up doing more than what they probably actually would if they would just be in a small group by them or I don't say by themselves, but a smaller group with people that they're not as familiar with. So it does, seem to, you know, raise the tide with, um, everybody else. 
the the other thing in terms of hockey that I kind of wanted to hear your opinion on is the the long-term athletic development side of it. You said the kids are starting to obviously play super early. Um, and we know that generally research is showing that it's not the ideal thing to do to specialize early. Is there, is the issue with hockey that everybody thinks that their kid can go play on like a national team or are they, are they looking at just college or is it even that competitive, even at the high school level that if you're not starting at a super young age, um, that you're going to be left behind. I will say that I don't, I don't condone it, but I, I guess if there's any sport that I guess a kid that I would think might want to start a little earlier and get exposed to, it would probably be hockey just because of being on ice and getting ice time is he's not like you can just walk outside and, and do it. You know, you've got to actually probably have a rink and somebody to kind of practice with here and there, but most sports, you know, you usually would make the same argument. You need either a wrestling mat or a hoop, but some of those things are easier to come by. Um, so I guess let me know. I'm interested in your thoughts on the the special hyper specialization when it comes into hockey. Well, first off, I think we need to bring you out to Minnesota during the winter, um, <laughs> so that way you can drive by some of the little like little swamp ponds that we have, and everybody has a net out there. Oh wow! Yeah, so yeah, it's easy to actually step outside and just get on ice. Okay, uh, um, which is kind of funny because yeah, I mean. You go anywhere south of Minnesota, basically, and you're not getting on ice unless yeah. you go to an uh, indoor rink. Um, but, yeah, so the biggest thing that I would say is there's so much pressure to be on the A team starting off in squirts. Um, so the way hockey does it is you have A, B1, B2, C. And – if you make the A team in squirts, you are basically on a good trajectory to be on the high school team. And most of the high schools here in the metro area definitely cut kids, um, especially the bigger metro area schools, um, which is funny because the the biggest two biggest cities in Minnesota are St. Paul and Minneapolis. Uh, they actually combine all their schools to make one team just because it's more of an inner city place and there's not a whole lot of kids that play hockey in Minneapolis or St. Paul anymore. Um, but when you get out into the suburbs, you get into places like Edina, Minnetonka, um, and places like that, they still have, they'll have their varsity team, they'll have their JV team, and then if you get cut, they have, uh, USA hockey teams, which are called Junior Gold in Minnesota, and they'll have up to five Junior Gold teams. So they'll have, you know, almost a hundred kids that they cut from the varsity and JV teams that still go and play. Okay. Um, so, I mean, if if you don't play or if you don't start that skating until you're and let's say if you do kind of like what most football programs do in Minnesota and you don't start playing until you're 12 or 13 years old, you're going to be pretty far behind and you're not going to be really in that pipeline to get to the high school team. Uh Um, Now, with that being said, there is a kid by the name of Hunter Mishka. He is in the Coyotes 
system right now, I think. He was in the Coyote system. I'm not sure where he is now. But he didn't start playing until he was 13 years old. And he was just a good enough athlete that he started playing goalie when he was 13. And three years later, he was on the U.S. national team. um, Or national development team, I should say. And then he went to the University of Minnesota Duluth after that. And then he got drafted by the Coyotes after that. So... So there's definitely stories of kids starting late and jumping in and making it to the pros. Um, there's also, I actually trained this guy. He was cut from the high school team every single year, um, played junior gold, um, and then ended up going to play juniors after his senior year, made it through the junior circuit. Uh, committed to a Division One school at Mercyhurst, played one year at Mercyhurst, and then signed with the Capitals. Um, and you don't hear about those kind of stories very often. Right. Um, where you get cut from your high school team every single year and then end up signing a pro contract. So, so yeah, so that was, I mean, it's an interesting deal in Minnesota where hockey is just so prevalent and so competitive. And some of these uh, different areas, especially those suburban areas, that yeah, you have to start early to to develop those skills. Um, but then on the flip side, I'm trying to think if I have anybody. Almost every single one of my kids that I have that are in high school right now are at least two sport athletes. Most of them are three sport sport athletes. So, and I had I have a girl that just went to. Uh, Trine University out there in Indiana. Yep. And and she's playing hockey and lacrosse out there. So oh. she's she's staying as a two sport athlete even in college. So what um what time of the year is hockey usually like is they considered a, a winter sport? Yep. Yeah, okay. so for for high school they, Yeah, so for high school in Minnesota uh, the girls start first, so they'll start two weeks before the guys. So they usually start the first Monday of November or the first Monday after Halloween is usually the how they describe it. So they'll go then, and then the guys start two weeks later. Um, and then girls usually get done the last weekend of February. Guys are done two weeks later. Okay. So kind of similar to swimming around here if I had to classify it in terms of our sports, in terms of the, the seasonality. So um, with the with going back to the long-term athletic development side of things, when are kids seeing – are you seeing any kind of burnout? Like are kids getting to high school and being like, I've just played this so much, like I'm tired of playing? Or are, are they at that point still committed and – usually follow through because I'm, I'm interested to see if like getting subjected that early to it. And obviously it sounds like the culture up there is hockey is a thing. And that's kind of what I think of whenever sports wise, whenever I think of Minnesota is hockey. Um, Obviously the Gophers have had a good tradition with hockey. Um, So how, how often are you seeing that kind of prevalence? So at the high high school level, not a ton. Um, trying to think of any 
I had I have one girl right now that, but that was a whole different deal. Um, yeah, I mean, most of the kids, if they play up until high school, they usually play all the way through high school unless they get cut, and then sometimes they'll they'll stop playing then. But yeah. mo- most kids that I've seen play all the way through. Um, the burnout kind of comes from when they get done with high school. Because um, a lot of them will have the dream or desire to go play college hockey. But the transition from high school to college is such a grind through the junior ranks that it, it, it will take a toll on you. Um, I had a kid that I trained that is first year after high school, he made a junior team as the number three goalie. So he practiced all year, didn't get a single minute in the net in a game. And then the two goalies that were above him both went off to college after that year. So he was thinking, all right, you know, I'm going to just step right into the number one role. It'll be awesome. It's going to be great. And the owner of the team sold it and they moved and he didn't even get an invite to the camp for the next season. Oh, wow. So, so then it was find a different team. So um, he got signed by a team down in Texas, went down there, um, and then was the last cut. Um, so then he came back. A team in Minnesota signed him and then immediately traded him to a team in Wisconsin. And with, ju- the, with junior hockey, you have what's called – billet families so players will live with a family in their home they'll feed them you know help take care of them things like that well his billet house was in a trailer park and not that trailer parks can't be nice but uh, he described this and he showed me pictures of this place and it was not where you want to spend the next nine months of your life yeah um while you're trying to play hockey as well so so, yeah, so, I mean, that took a toll on him. He eventually quit, and uh, he, he actually still trains with me today. He uh, he started training for powerlifting and, and has gone that route. But, but yeah, so, I mean, just there's things like that with junior hockey. That transition between high school and college is is tough, and it will take a toll on you. So, so gotcha. that's, where, that's where the burnout comes from. So at the at the college level, are they looking? It sounds to me like it may even be kind of like softball and baseball around here, where colleges are looking not so much at like your high school career, but they care more about your your travel. Is that was that a good way to put that? I guess. So, kind of um, junior hockey is like college hockey is weird because most college freshman hockey players are 21 years old Uh, okay so you have three years in between high school and college where you go and play and you develop and then you go play college um except for you know you have guys that are very very high end who go and play when they're you know 18 right out of high school um but those guys are kind of far and few between so it sounds like it needs to do you think they're waiting for more 
physical maturity? You think between that 18, 21, that kids just mature a little bit more and that makes them, I don't want to say, obviously they're going to be better athletes to some degree, but if they're doing the travel stuff, they're obviously getting more skill too. But I don't know if maybe like um, kind of how college football is for the NFL to go, you got to at least have one year, but usually people have several years in the NFL because when you look, they're just not physically ready to play at that next level. So I think a lot of it is the physical maturity. Um, a lot of it is the U.S. started the junior program and down here wow. to kind of mimic the Canadian junior system because there would be a lot of Canadian players coming down to the U.S. college ranks and they would be 21 years old. And then you're having a bunch of 21-year-olds against a bunch of 18-year-olds. So the junior system in the U.S. was kind of developed to mimic the Canadian system. Okay. And once that started, then all the colleges are starting to take guys out of the junior ranks because now if you have the, you know, if you have 20, 21 year or, you know, 21 to 25 year olds and you're playing against 18 to 22 year olds, you're going to be able to be physically much more mature and you can, you know, be a lot harder on that younger team. You can take the body. You can, you can hit a lot more. Um, and just pound them. Yep. All right. In terms of, uh, it's going to kind of lead me into some powerlifting stuff, I guess. Uh, walk me a little bit through, you know, obviously you said you left weightlifting to do powerlifting. Um, what was kind of your, I guess, initial um, introduction into powerlifting for you? And I know you started off Ross, I guess, like, who were your influences there? Um, and then we'll kind of get into what got you into multiply and what after that. Yeah, so after I realized I could no longer do uh, weightlifting, I got into powerlifting, um, just started slowly training. And that's actually kind of when I found Elite FTS. Um, and so I started reading their Q&A from way back on their last website. So, you know, the Q&A section had, God, just infinite knowledge on it. I mean, yeah. and, and you could ask a question and you'd have like five or six different people answering it, you know, within 20, 25 minutes, um, which was awesome. So that's what kind of got me into powerlifting. Um, so I started that. And when I started my job at Carleton College. Um, I got into finally competing. Um, I trained for about a year and a half. Yeah, probably actually about, yeah, about a year and a half um, before I competed the first, for the first time, um, which I think was very beneficial for me um, instead of just jumping into the platform right away. Um, and then went down that road for the raw road for quite a while um and I actually got into coaching powerlifters because i had a track athlete who she had a year off or a semester off um where she had nothing else to do she had one semester that she had to finish and she had a season of indoor track that she could do so 
she was like, well, can I do a powerlifting meet um, with you while I, you know, don't have school this semester? I'm like, sure, why not? And that kind of turned into me coaching her. Um, and then, you know, we trained together. I coached her. We competed together. And then we, we kind of, or went from there. So um, that's kind of how that went as far as getting into powerlifting and getting into the coaching of powerlifters. Um, multiply. So I competed raw since 2012 was my first meet or no, 2013 was my first meet. 2013, um, was my first meet and I had competed raw for about eight years before I decided to jump into multiply. And it was mostly, I just wanted to see what I could do. Um, I had squatted 600 in the gym and then of course, I decided to take another little jump after that, right about six weeks out from my meet, and I t- tried to take 615 and screwed up my back a little bit on that 615, um, but squatting 600 raw was kind of my goal before I jumped into gear, and I figured, okay, well, I hit my 600 raw. Um, obviously, I didn't get in the meet because my back was a little bit tweaked, but I hit 585 in that meet, so I'm like, all right, it's it's time to take the jump, see what I can do um, in multiply. So, got into multiply, um, and that's been an awesome experience. It's just so much different from raw um, as far as learning the skills and learning the carryover of the gear. Um, The first time I, you know, or my first meet, trying to get my first touch in my shirt was the biggest pain in the ass ever. Yep. Um, I think I went, so I bought a Ray Jax um, off Facebook Marketplace from a guy, and I could not get that thing to touch for the life of me. I could two board press, like, 550, I think I had that two board, maybe even 575, and getting below two board was just damn near impossible. Um, so I went and saw a guy by the name of Greg Dominga, actually. He uh, yep. owns a gym in Minnesota as well. And he got me into a different shirt. He got me into a red SDP. And with that, I was able to touch. Um, and then my first meet actually went awesome. Went three for three on bench. Um, and I found out later the next week when I went back and brought Greg the shirt back and everything else. Um, the gym had a bet on whether or not I would actually make a bench attempt or if I'd bomb out. And <laughs> apparently most of them had money on me bombing out. So I took a pretty good chunk of change home for, uh, going oh, nice. for three. So, but, but yeah, so that was kind of my intro into multiply. Um, and then been going at it ever since with multiply and, I actually just started working with Marshall jo- uh, Marshall Johnson as yep. my coach. Um, so that's been an interesting experience, um, kind of seeing how different people take a different approach to training multiply. Yep. So, so like, I was, after that first meet, I was never too worried about touching um, in my meat prep phase as long as I could get touch you know two three weeks out from my meat I figured I was good to go 
now with Marshall, I am doing my first three weeks in my shirt where the goal is to touch a weight that is no more than 10% of my raw max. So, so he's trying to get me to really truly learn how to manipulate the shirt instead of just adding more weight. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that's been fun to kind of see different approaches like that. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, um, I'm, I'm sure like even while you were in equipment, uh, how, what got you using the conjugate method? Was that through Elite FTS and you tinkering with things? Were you taking like, um, I don't want to say blanket templates, but were you just like running what generally Westside would do and then just making tweaks along the way? I'm curious on how you kind of evolved how you use that system for how you trained. So I took some of the stuff through the Elite FTS and I took some of the stuff from Conjugate U from Nate Harvey. Okay. And Nate's conjugate U is more of the template that I use now. Okay. Um, just because you get more of the athletic stuff in there. Um, and I actually, so my last college stop was at Carleton College. The college before that that I was at was Northern State University out in South Dakota. And the guy out there was a very, 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 very linear guy. Like, Linear was the only thing that you could do. There was no reason to do anything other than just linear. And so, like, with football, we started with, like, two sets of 20 on week one of their offseason. And we worked down to, I think it was, like, five sets of two the week before they'd start their uh, preseason camp. And that was just, we just went straight linear with them. Um, and I saw guys getting hurt left and right. And I'm like, all right, there, there has to be a better way there. This can't be the best way. This is dumb. Like all these guys are getting hurt. We're not getting any better. So I started reading things and as well as I came from very academic, you know, background for strength and conditioning. Like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, I hated lifting just because Working up to like 135 on squats and deadlifts every single time and doing like 3 by 10 through high school and college, just it got boring and monotonous. It was like, all right, I'm going to do the same thing again today as I did last week. And that you know, was kind of the way it was. So, But I came from the very academic side of strength and conditioning, which you know is the NSCA, and the NSCA preaches linear periodization, yep. or, at least, or at least they did back then. Um, you know, kind of doing some of the different CSCS, uh, CEUs, they've at least kind of expanded on just linear. It's, you know, gotten into some different stuff. But back then it was all linear periodization. Um, so started reading some different things. Um, read Dave Tate's article on T-Nation, um, Periodization Bible Part 1. And that was kind of my first experience with Conjugate. Then it was, all right, now I need to read all the West Side stuff. So we read all the West Side stuff and then got um, Nate's Conjugate U-Book, read that. And then that, the Conjugate U-Book was what made everything make sense. Um, like the West Side Book of Methods, the first time I read that, I had no fucking clue what, oh, sorry. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> you're gonna get a warning on your podcast now. My bad. But anyways, I had no idea what Louie was trying to talk about. Like I read it through like two or three times, and it was just confusing as hell. Um, but Nate's conjugate you made everything make sense. So that was awesome. Um, understood it, and then started uh, programming with that. So, um, and just kind of went with there. So the one big thing that I did do at Carlton that I started to do. Um, was I actually blended Caldeet's triphasic training yep. with Nate Harvey's Conjugate U. Um, we would go for the max effort movements. We would do the eccentrics for two weeks. And then for the isometrics, we'd do that for two weeks of max effort. And then we'd just do two weeks of dynamic effort on both days. Um, and I saw some great results with that. Um, and it's something that I've tinkered with a few times, um, since I've gotten to the private sector. Um, I just don't have the time. Well, actually, I have more time here, but I don't have the resources that I did at yeah. Carlton. Like at Carlton, I could have like five football guys and at one time, and that was a great way to spot everybody. Cause when you're going 120% of a guy's max, squat you don't want just one person trying to spot right um so so yeah so it was a lot easier to do there um it is something that i want to get back into here though gotcha yeah i i does what kind of approach does marshall use does he use more of like a block approach i'm assuming so he's kind of all over the place um it's basically we talked the before he sent me on my first program, we talked a lot. And he's like, all right, we're going to get away from conjugate for you because that's what you've been running for the last eight years. Um, so he's like, we're going to get away from that and do some different stuff. So we went just strictly linear with a little bit of a block base. So like, we had, all right, we're going to run a strength phase, but we're going to run it linearly. We're going to do hypertrophy phase, and we're going to run it linearly. So... So that's kind of what we've been doing. Um, now we're into our equip phase, and we're kind of doing that winterly as well. So, gotcha. Um, I'm curious to see what we do when we get into meat prep. So, still trying to figure out meat. Um, I was actually thinking about coming out do the spring meet at your guys' place. Um, yeah. But we're going out. I'm taking three of my lifters out to the women's program the next weekend. Yep. So I'm not sure if I'm ready for two trips out two there trips. and two weekends. So yeah, we actually have a guy that signed up for our meet, and he's he actually is uh I think he lives in Canada, and that was his first thing was he just like I want to know what kind of bars, and he's like if I'm gonna have to be out to the pro am, we're just gonna basically stay a whole week, and then on the way back, I'm gonna do our meet while they travel back. So. I think they're going to basically fly into Cincinnati. His wife's going to do a meet. And then I don't know how they plan to get to Terre Haute, but then they're going to basically do our meet in Terre Haute and then fly out of Indy back home. So he's they're making like a whole trip out of it, which, I, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah. It would make for a, a long week, but I can totally understand that. So Yeah. So, and we, we drive pretty much everywhere. So, yeah. Um, just, 
flying into Cincinnati from Minnesota is so expensive, and then you got to rent a car and all that stuff. It's just it's way easier just to drive, even though. And it's just a logistical headache to yes flights, get off the flights, have the Uber get you to wherever you got to go, and then if you yep. go to the hotel, then you got to get to the meet somehow. So either got to Uber to the meet or rent a car. Yeah, that's just a yeah. That's so, and it's only a twelve hour drive. Just if you guys could fix your roads in Indiana, that'd be great. <sighs> yeah, they're bad. I know they're really bad. Although Especially I will say, on the interstates. I will say the uh, the tollway, the Indiana tollway up in northern Indiana that runs like from Chicago, Chicago. to like Toledo. That's actually pretty nice. Um, we took that when we went up to Pennsylvania for Strongman Corps Nationals, and we flew across that. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's honestly about pretty much almost everything south of Indianapolis. Kind of just is not good. Just forgotten yeah. about. Pretty much, yeah. Unless if you're in like, unless you're in like Bloomington for IU or you know like a, a little bit of a bigger city, Evansville's not too bad. But um, yeah, once you start getting down there, it's all all farmland and whatever. It just doesn't get taken care of like it should. Yeah, that was like the last minute. Um, so the last co- thing I have for you here is, um, well, it sounds like you're trying to find a meet, so that kind of answers some of it. But I guess what is next for you in terms of either coaching, training, competing, I guess, what's something you got coming on in the next, like, six to 12 months? So, trying to find a meet right now. Um, thinking that if it's not your guys' meet, it'll either be Anthony Oliveira's meet in the spring out in New Hampshire or the Dominguez meet here in Minnesota. Um, okay. Right now, there's some stuff going on, obviously, with the APF, um, which is what, Anthony and Gret and the Dominguez ran their meets in, and neither of those two are affiliated with APF anymore. So, trying to figure out exactly what's going to happen with that. So, um, that will be kind of part one, is figuring that out and then going from there. Um, as far as coaching, um, I'm actually getting more and more athletes that aren't hockey players, which is kind of fun. Um, just got to track athlete that is a 800 high jump long jump girl which i don't know how those three correlate with each other but it's been interesting training her lately so um she's probably one of the most fluid athletes movement wise i've ever coached like watching her run it's like watching gazelle run it's just Easy, springy, fluid movement. It's awesome. Um, watching her squat. So she's about five seven, five eight, and about 90 pounds. And she's a freshman in high school. So I started her just on gallop box squats um, to get her squatting. And watching her box squat is like, it's the one of the best box squats I've ever seen. Like, it is to the T of what you want. Um, which is absolutely awesome. It's been fun coaching that. So, so that's been kind of fun um, coaching wise. Um, all my college kids are the rest of my college kids will all be back today um, for anywhere from one to three weeks. So, be busy with that um, these next few weeks, which is always a fun time. Um, trying to think of what else I got going on. I got three people doing a strongman meet. In February, three people doing the, the women's program 
Um, Sheena Reed is doing her first pro day at the pro day program, which should be fun. Um, we've set some different goals. Uh, one of which is the biggest raw total, um, just overall. Um, and then Amber Hansen decided to enter raw, which is <laughs> going to make things interesting. Um, yep. but, uh, but yeah, so Sheena just totaled over 1300 at her last meet this spring. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what she can do. Um, just trying to think what else I got going on as far as coaching coming up. I think that's all the meets that we have truly scheduled. So, so yeah, um, other than that, not much going on. So just getting ready for Christmas here as well. Yeah. Yep. A couple days away. So, um, well, that's all I've got for you. I appreciate you coming on. Great to learn about hockey and um how you're kind of approaching working your athletes with that because like i said i it's just not a whole lot many people are not talking about hockey i'd obviously be kind of in that niche and um i like learning about it so i definitely took some good stuff away and hopefully everyone else did uh, and then kind of just catching up more on your history of how you got into powerlifting and weightlifting that's always exciting i like to hear that and obviously all the athletes you're working with, it sounds like everybody's doing awesome. I'm not surprised one bit. Um, and it's been awesome to get to to know you guys coming down and supporting some of our meets and just seeing you at all the FTS stuff. So it's kind of cool how all that stuff brings everybody together. So Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, I was talking about this with a guy that I met at uh, the Train Your Ass Off that I did with uh, Dave a few years ago. And the amount of people that I've met through UFTS has been just awesome like yeah and it's people i would have never met without that so um between you Nate harvey and sheehan um cory the other guy that i know that from training your ass off i mean just all kinds of different people it's it's been an awesome experience and you know thankful for a company like elf just to, to connect everybody like that so absolutely all right well thanks again for coming on and um Everybody, have a good good day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Thirst for More Podcast. Make sure you give us a follow on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else you like to consume your podcast. You can also check us out on YouTube at The Smitley, where you'll find clips and lots of educational-based material for strength and conditioning and exercise science. You can also make sure you give me a follow on Instagram at The Smitley or at Team Thirst, which is my gym Instagram page. For any more future updates on episode to come, you can make sure you follow me there. I'm your host, Brandon Smitley. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you at the next episode.